0: Hi, and welcome to this special edition of the Heart to Heart Walk podcast. In these episodes, we get to hear from everyday people who've done extraordinary things and how sometimes that can be hard on them and their families, which is what this walk is really about. So get ready to hear some amazing stuff from amazing people. The Heart to Heart Walk podcast listeners, today's episode is one of the chats that we have with everyday people that's led an extraordinary life. And today's episode will be another hot debrief episode where we'll go through what worked well, what didn't work so well, and what that person may or may not do differently if they had their time again. And today we have Tony Waller, OAM, who's had actually a, a parallel life. You've uh, you've had a, an extensive career in fire rescue New South Wales and also surfs life saving. So, um, yeah, welcome, Tony.
1: Thanks, madam. Thanks for having me today. Thanks for the
0: invite. Oh, I really appreciate it. So, Tony, I must admit, I did get a a bottle of water when I got your bio, <laughs> and you know, your career spans back uh, literally to the year I was born, back to nineteen seventy five. Looking at looking at your timeline, when um, you kicked off with surf lifesaving as a patrolman, and tied up in that, you've also spent forty one years with Fire Rescue New South Wales. So. We've got a lot to get through, I see coming, but look, right at the very start, would you just tell us a little bit about yourself, where you grew up and, you know, what led you to this career line?
1: Yeah, thanks, Maddie. Well, I've grown up and lived all my life at Coogee in the eastern suburbs. I've been lucky enough to live, you know, 150 metres from the beach for most of my life. And so it was inevitable, I guess, that I would have joined the surf club, which is to stand at the end of my street. Yeah, 1975 started as a cadet there, and um, you know, coming out of nippers and into into the, the club junior ranks, and got your bronze medallion a couple of years later, and then I've been patrolling ever since, and still currently patrolling. I think this is my 48th season down on the beach at Kudj. 48 and love years, love every minute. 48 years there, and wow. um, you know, it's just been a it's been a constant in my life. Uh, My sons are also involved in Surf Life Saving. Sometimes Sharon's like, well, what am I going to do today? And I always suggest you should do a bronze medallion. It doesn't go (laughs) over too well. But it's just been a a mainstay of my life. And I think that the the grounding that I got in Surf Life Saving led to that community service piece and then also the want to become a firefighter. And it didn't hurt at the interview. You know, it was actually a talking point when I was in there being being interviewed about, oh, I see that you're in the surf club and, you know, done rescues and, you know, community service and the stuff like that. So that that sort of carried me. And then getting into Surf Life Saving sort of led me into becoming a, a crewman a couple of years later on the Westpac Rescue Helicopter and, again, still there and active since uh, I think I joined in the season of 84, 85, and I've been there since. So uh, still a rescue crewman and air crewman out at Westpac. Wow.
0: Jeez, that's going back a ways and you're still kicking along.
1: Still kicking along. You know, every every six months they uh, put us in the pool. We have to do our, our run, swim, runs in the surf and a, a pool swim and a four-kilometre run and sit-ups, push-ups and chin-ups. So every six months it's sort of held me to account. It's made sure that I've looked after my body all those years because uh, yeah. if you don't pass your test, you don't get to fly. So, yeah, yeah. so it's just one of those things. I
0: guess that's a big motivator when you're doing something you love to make sure you can keep doing it. But, yeah, that's a uh, – wow, that's a – a big credit to you all these years on still... still. It's getting
1: a little bit harder, I must say. Matt, <laughs> <right>? so, <laughs> we're all, it's like Dad's army out there at the moment. We're all a little bit old. A lot of experience, but the bodies aren't what they used to be.
0: Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure. So, look, going back to going through to joining the fire, the fire Brigade, New South Wales Fire Brigade back in those days. So, you said your inroads through surf life saving sort of helped you, but what was it like joining for you back then?
1: Oh, wow, it, um, you know, the Fire Brigade. Um, has moved on, you know. Over the decades, I, I was there for I think 41 years, four months, fifteen thousand and ninety-five days to be exact. Oh. Um, so, you know, 1981, mate, was uh, woolen line tamer's uniforms. Um, you know, very basic equipment. Uh, breathing apparatus had not been on, on the trucks for every firefighter for much time. In fact, I was actually called a fireman because there were no female firefighters at that stage. Yeah, in the right. So. But probably that first sort of decade, it was, it was a man's domain, you know, like it was uh, very military in its style. Um, I arrived day one at the training college at Alexandria. Yep. And in my period, it was three months of uh, basic training at the academy. Uh, and then you were sent out for three months on probation at a station to uh, be assessed by your station commander. And then at the end of the six months, you did a confirmation of appointment exam. And if you didn't, Past that, and you didn't get a good fitness report from the officer that had been in charge of three months, they could let you go. So the first six months was very, you know, you were on tender hooks because you had to make sure you were passing your exams and, yeah. and fitting in. And then at the end of that six months, then you were uh, you were put onto the superannuation scheme and you were there and ready to go. So yeah, first six months with you know, th- literally three months. So there wasn't a lot of training, it's nothing like what the the kids get now, like, you know, yeah. by the time they walk out of that academy, they are you know fit for purpose and ready to go. We did a lot of learning um, through osmosis and through a, a mentor program. The, yeah. the senior man on your shift was God and he taught you everything you needed to do and, you know, occasionally you would talk to the station commander and, in fact, in those early days, like late 70s, Station commanders still sat in their own mess room and, and didn't actually sit in with the men, even when there was one, you know, three firefighters and one officer. Really, there were still stations with little single mess rooms, so that you weren't uh, with the officer. You know, it was only just changing uh, furniture within the fire station. We would drive through the district, and we loved junk days because we go, oh, there's a new orange lounge down there <laughs> on Macleay Street, and we go down and pick it up on the back of the truck and bring it back. So, look, the conditions have improved greatly. Yeah. The equipment, the the fire engines, uh, you know, it's just such a superior service to what it was back in, in right. those, you know, the seventies and eighties. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, gee, that is a, uh, that's a, there's a big shift there now, isn't there? From uh, not even being able to eat with the officer on duty to uh...
1: and stuff like that. Yeah, it was, you know, and it was very military very military based. You know, a lot of old guys, particularly probably the younger ones at that stage, were back from Nam. Um, and you know there was quite a quite a bit of angst within them and amongst themselves. Um, right. They did fit in well into the fire brigade because they they had that sense of belonging in the fire yep. brigade that they probably wouldn't have found elsewhere in the community. Yeah. So, um, it, you know, very much so. But it was a man's world. It was a hard world. Um, you know, they weren't backwards at telling you you were wrong and you were doing the wrong thing. Yeah. Um, it's a different workplace now. You know, Absolutely. It was back in those days
0: for sure. Yeah. So where was your first station?
1: My first station was Darlinghurst. Right, um, And back, here, back in early 80s, that was uh, Fire City. That was Fort Apache, the Bronx, and Fire <laughs> City all tied up into one. We actually had the police jump squad uh, for the casinos and the illegal gambling and, and drinking that up in the cross. Roger Rogers and all those guys were in the actual fire station.
0: Um, <laughs> and we were down on the ground floor.
1: They were different times. And we had uh, a single truck and it was a, a station officer and six firefighters jammed on one truck. As the junior man at the time, I sat... On the jump seat between the driver and the officer without a seatbelt yeah right um and that was what we did one engine and then in about 88 they gave us a set of turntable ladders back that had been taken away many decades before and so all of a sudden it became a a two truck station which made it a little bit more more fun a little bit more camaraderie a bit of crew so but it was fire city so uh back in that day you know we were in those early 80s and that was the era where there was not much regulation around backpackers and stuff and that we were at that prolific stage where backpackers were becoming very common. They were overcrowded and we were, you, know, you didn't go through a night shift up there where you didn't go to an active fire, you know, on wow. a Friday and a Saturday night you might have had two or three active fires. So it was a fantastic learning ground for a young firefighter to learn their firemanship. Uh, yeah. You know, so those early, that probably that first five or six in fact, you know, my very first fire, we go back to that probationary period, I was um, my first fire and it was only just recalled recently at my retirement was I was still on probation and we weren't supposed to go into the fire because until the end of your six-month period you weren't actually superannuated. You, you, if you'd have got hurt, um, there was no coverage for you. So you were riding on the fire truck but you weren't supposed to go into the fires. We, we had this um, fire in Roslyn Gardens at the, at the back of King's Cross, just a couple of streets back from the big Coke sign. And it was a block of units and it was well alight and it was like all hands on deck and the officers, I don't care, get an asset on, you going in. And my very first fire, red message, you know, trucks coming from the city and Willara and Bondi, everyone was closing in on the joint. They were going down, the senior man was kicking doors in and we were going doing the search. And my very, very first fire when I was not supposed to be in the fire, um, I did the whole thing, left-hand search, through the room, into a bedroom. And I found a young girl under the bed. Oh, and wow. she had Down syndrome and um I carried her out and um that was sort of the hook for me. The job had substance. It was something you made a difference every day you went to work.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Gee, that's a that's a hectic start of your career. Like when you're not yeah, e- not even meant to be in there to be doing a
1: live, not meant to be in there, and the boss just would get in there, like and it yeah. was all hands on deck, and we were evacuating people from this building, and it was you know well aligned and and you know multiple people in there, and that and that was it. So that was sort of a, a, a you know initiation by fire, literally, and, um, yeah. But you know, uh, literally, and um, but it, it sort of hooked me. It was like this is this is the job I want to do for life.
0: Yeah. Wow. That's a that's an amazing start. To any any career, you don't get, <laughs> you don't get a kick off point like that too often. I don't think. Not like that. No. Yeah. Wow. So was most of your service in the brigade in the inner city city area? Yeah.
1: So I was a suburb's brat. So I I progressed through from probationary firefighter at Darlinghurst through to the senior man on shift and. About 88, 89. So I'd lasted from 81, which you always used to keep your head down. You whenever a <laughs> senior officer asked, "How long you been there?" So oh, just a little bit of time. sir. you never said too much. <laughs> no computers and the like back then. They'd have to go look up your your card and see how long you'd been there. Yeah. And unfortunately, after we got the the turntable ladders back up at Darlinghurst, um, once you're a specialist, you go where they need you. And I was sent to uh, Willara. Yep. I went kicking and screaming because I'd had my whole, you know, my first 10 or 11 years at Darlinghurst. Yep. And, or it was nine years. And um, then I got shifted up to Willara and, uh, you know, wasn't real happy that I was going. And uh, But after about six months, I went, oh, I really like this. It was a lovely garden station and <laughs> we're looking after all of the Willara area and all of the consulates. And it was quite quite nice. You got to drive by the beaches down to Bondi and the like. And uh, yeah. I liked that. And uh, it was while I was there... Uh, my mate that I retired with, Clay Allison, um, sort of rang me up and he'd been transferred out to Burwood and he said, there's a spot out here, it's a rescue station, are you going to come? i got it for you. Boss said yay. I went, you know what, yeah, I will. So I went in and had to tell my station officer that I wanted to go to Burwood and my inspector and they both said, you're mad. No, no, you're not going yet. No, we want you here, you're a ladder specialist, you're staying here. So anyway, this spot, there was a bit of a, um, I came out in in orders I was supposed to be transferred and my inspector wouldn't let me go because he didn't <laughs> want to lose me. And he said, we need, you know, people with the skills that you've got here on the turntable ladders and the like because they invest a fair bit of money back in the day. Yeah. That was one of the specialty areas you could go into and it, it wasn't, you know, the state rescue board hadn't been around a long time. Remembering that the Gray Report and all yeah, that came yeah. into play, and you know, in the particularly the early '80s, rescue was a very contested area. Everybody yep. had a finger in the pie from police, <laughs> fire, ambulance. Everyone was doing it, and there was always, you know, it was very much "this is our patch, get out of our oh, area" yeah. and stuff like that. As you're aware. Yeah. Um. So anyway, I I, I stuck my ground, and I, I got transferred out to to uh, to Bowood. And that was really a, it got me going again because I'd become very happy living in the eastern suburbs and right. working in the eastern suburbs and knowing my area. And it would probably, it kicked me in the backside and got me studying again and actively, you know, practising my skills as a fireman. So I got out there and I became a rescue operator at Burwood. And, you know, that was a just a, a hub of excellence. The guys that were out there were just all masters of rescue on that. You could rattle off a, yeah. a dozen names of people that you'd know that, you know, in, in the uh, in the rescue fraternity that were just, guys that you just learned from so I got out there and it was great because that I'd been riding I was a firefighter for I was 41 years in the job and I was a firefighter on the trucks for the first 20 years so I just loved it I'd got to a senior firefighter no matter where I went just from my senior I always ended up being the senior firefighter yeah and um and so I just love that because you're always the guy on the hose or the guy leading the yeah, crew yeah. Or, you know all that sort of stuff but none of the responsibilities yeah. of the station <laughs> officer doing all that and but I sort of got to a point where once I got there, I'd got um you know, sort of reinvigorated, I might say, at Burwood. And I started to study for my officer exams. And from there, that sort of once I became a station officer, I also then it was sort of either sent to wherever they wanted you to go as a yeah. station commander back then. Not so and much saying out. Yeah. Saying senior rescue instructor required. So I applied and got in, and then you had to go through a process back in the back in the day. You were a, a rescue instructor for the fire brigade, but you had to be put your application forward at the state rescue board and be accepted by your peers, you yeah, know, the yeah. police and, and the Ambos, and that would review your application. And I, I went through and uh, Bruce, who you interviewed just yeah. recently, and myself were one of the last couple of fires that actually went through that process. They stopped doing that, but you actually used to be certified by the state rescue board. Yeah, that's and, right. Um, yeah, know, to yeah. become a senior rescue instructor. Yeah, yeah so right. I went through that process. Yeah, and I was just in the right place at the right time. USAR was kicking into gear, we'd uh, we'd taken um, over, uh, ambulance had um, decided to cut back on their rescue and we had a whole lot of rescue stations to bring online. So we were training, The rescue instructors were all over the place, both regionally and in the metro areas, running rescue courses. And we had this fledgling thing there just in a along urban <laughs> search and rescue you know so yeah um and then while while i was actually at the rescue section and i spent just short of 10 years there as a station officer and new instructor rescue instructor yep there was this uh, at that stage under the state of emergency rescue management act there was this you know concept of you know you, you um you had to be capable of managing all the risks in your area yeah. of policy set yep. and and at uh we saw this grey area where swiftwater rescue, in particular, if a car went into a waterway, who was responsible for a hazmat? There was a hazmat act, but a car in a waterway or people stuck in running water, and there was this specialty called swiftwater, and no one knew much about it. That's and right, So yeah. I, wrote, I wrote a report up, and I was actually given one of the first two overseas study trips for firefighters. Up until that, only an officer would go overseas to investigate things and the like. And and Ian McDougall, the ex. Um, Admiral from the Royal Australian Navy that became our commissioner sort of went, you know what, I'm I'm actually, you've got all these talented guys and I'm going to put out this, you know, this program where they can start to travel the world and see things. So I got chosen to go to America and uh, and, and investigate and bring back skill sets around Swiftwater. So I was sent over and put in contact by the then assistant commissioner, Greg Mullins. He put me in contact Uh with all these contacts in Los Angeles. So I was over there and I, I spent uh, quite a bit of time there and I did all my swift water training with L.A. County, L.A. Right. City, the Sheriff's Department, Rescue 3, and it was just as the L.A. County had taken over Baywatch. Um, so they'd actually just become <laughs> light, light, lifeguarding had just become one of their things. So while I was there I got to, you know, ride on the Baywatch boats and, and patrol on the towers as a lifesaver. Yeah, it what was a, unreal. It was what just Troy's stuff, you know. yeah yeah, and, and I came back with uh, flood and, and uh, flood water and swift water credentials, and yep. um, then that became one of my little projects back at, uh, at the rescue section. And uh, back in the day, there was a guy, Murray Tucker, down in Victoria, a lovely guy. We reached out to him. He had an educational background, but there were no units of competency at that stage that had been mapped. There was nothing to do. So yeah. we basically had to go, well, what are we going to do here so we got him up and he helped me to deliver the first few courses because I needed his XP. He was a river man. He got the, the, the hydraulics of the river and all the stuff I'd yep. learned. And I was really able to be mentored by him to the extent of, you know, how do you explain the hydraulics of a river and the like? So yeah. we went down that path and then at that stage we started to use the Whitewater Park. It took yep. a little bit of getting in there, but in the early days they let me run my own fire rescue swift water courses. Did so they? we started to do that. Yeah, yeah, they were. You know, they were they was costing us. They were charging <laughs> premium dollars to get the pumps to run and stuff yeah, like yeah. that. And um, so, but yeah, so I trained initially. We, we trained the first, you know, hundred fireys um, out there ourselves yep. at, at the Whitewater Park.
0: Back in the day, we um we freelanced out a little bit ourselves from the from the mountains down to it was actually Rescue Three International based course that we did through the Swiftwater yep. Rescue Centre there at Penrith. Um, which is, the, yeah. which is the Olympic Whitewater Centre that was made for the 2000 Olympics for those that aren't familiar with it. Yeah, wow, that's interesting. You went all the way over the States that to do in, that. And, uh, they didn't send me over to the States no, hey, right. to do the Australian I so. version. That
1: it. You should have wrote up a better report. <laughs> and look, so for me at the moment, um, a little bit bittersweet because here I am now retired and in the very sort of the last few months, all of this stuff that started to happen back in, you know, about, well, I was about 98. Uh, It's all come to fruition, you know. So I've fought fought this battle for decades with my senior officers. Yeah, Yeah, but Tony, you're not putting them in the water. Yeah, boss, we've got to put them in the water, you know. We run into burning fires. We do hazardous chemical spills. And if they're well-trained, they'll be fine, trust me. But they didn't trust me. And we really, really pushed. It was land-based. Yeah. Um, <laughs> at one stage, it was any time you mentioned swift water, their eyes blazed over. So at yeah. one stage, it was fart, fire, or aquatic rescue training. So you know, yeah. anything <laughs> I could say that wasn't wasn't to do with swift water, I got a little bit further with. And now we look at it, and it's you know, we've just been given extra funding by the government. All of the agencies have, yeah. and you can see during times of flood how important oh, it is yeah. remembering that the person person being rescued doesn't care what badge you've got on, no. but now there's this commonality, you know, and in the last sort of 12 months, the fireys and the AMBOs and the SES and, yep. and, and the police, everybody's been training together, which is where we need to be. Yeah. You know, like the, the patch shouldn't matter. This is all about saving lives and looking after the communities. Yeah, that's you right. Know, the state, state government pumps a lot of money into us and we've got to get that right. Absolutely. You know, so that parochial... You know that that tribalism has to stop, and we just all have to get. And and we're there. I think that's really happening now. You've seen it with the floods. You've seen it with yeah. the rural, you know, with the rural fire stuff. It's a lot better than it was in the eighties. You know, yeah. you know that we would go to. You know training meetings with all of the key players at State Rescue Board level and people not talking
0: to you <laughs> and stuff like
1: that. It was just the most bizarre period. There, there was the no chit-chat
0: at 1990s. morning tea. <laughs> oh, no, there wasn't. It was
1: just this deadly silence. You go, oh, please just let me out. If yeah. you play paper, scissors, rocks, if they were saying, oh, you've got to go to a State Rescue Board meeting tomorrow, you know. so Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
0: So Tony, you've, you've led a a very full career in fire rescue and we haven't even touched on your surf lifesaving and helicopter work yet, but uh, Mm -hmm. some of the, some of the deployments you went on to major events around the country and internationally, do you want to, could you just fill us in a little bit about how you went about being involved in those and and transitioned your, I suppose, somewhat unique skill set within the brigade to applying it in those, those uh, operational areas?
1: Um, So I guess once I was a senior rescue instructor, we had this um, whole thing going on around urban search and rescue. You know, there were some um, pioneers of USAR in our organisation, the Warwick Kids and the Chris Sykes and that, that were rescue instructors that had come before me and had set the stage and had made this, this section within the fire brigade, the rescue section, the unit that you wanted to be at. It was Disneyland. Every day at work you turned up, you didn't want to go home, you just loved being there. There was a real esprit to call there. The guys worked for the organisation but also for themselves and for the greater good. So my early days in there, I was very quickly with a carpentry and building background. I was sort of co-opted into being the shoring, Uh tunnelling and anything to do with timber-type stuff skills. So, you know, I teach a lot of that. You've told me that you're a chippy.
0: I'm just trying to work out when you fit that in. Well, so
1: um, whilst I was a a firefighter, uh, I sort of realised that there was – more to just being a firefighter and, I, you know, I was never going to be rich being a firefighter, but man, I just love being a firefighter. So I had to do some other stuff, as a lot of fireys and other emergency service people do. Yeah, I they do. started off with a lawn run to start with. I used to cut lawns and then I ended up with seven real estate agents with other fireys helping me cut lawns. Then I went to carpentry <laughs> school as an apprentice one day a week because of the shift work. So I was a 32-year-old and I went to carpentry school. With all the 16-year-olds one day a week. And then I went on and got my builder's ticket and I've still maintained my builder's license to this day. So I had a had a building background yeah. and it fitted in really well with the urban search and rescue stuff. So if you understand how to build it, yeah, it, it just makes it a lot easier to understand how to support it or to pull it down to delaminate the buildings after the Yeah.
0: I can only add one thing to that. Now I know why you guys sleep on night shift. But anyway, <laughs> we'll move on. From we'll that move on.
1: That... Yeah, and so look, I, I guess so from those early stages and as a rescue instructor, I was um, selected to go up to Queensland and at that stage, Queensland and New South Wales were sort of preeminent in the urban search and rescue area. Early on, Melbourne yeah. Fire Department, Fire Brigade had had started off really well with it and dropped away. Um, ACT was a very big part of New South Wales program as well. Um, and I got selected to go up so at this stage we determined that from a national perspective we needed to pass these skills across the state so we started to do that so we we ran two national instructors courses and I got selected on both of those to be an instructor on it so I went up to Queensland and we lived in Queensland for a period of time instructing people from around Australia from all states to take the skill back to the other states so that they could develop their capability. And we did that twice, once in uh, Brisbane at their training centre and then once down here in Sydney at ours. And then from that, a lot of those guys, you know, they just all started reaching out in my retirement recently going, man, I still remember those days. So we ran these month-long courses to give them the skills to teach the urban urban search and rescue skills. Okay. So it was... Instructing yeah, right. instructors, you know. So yeah, trying to yeah, yeah. train the trainer stuff. You're in a room with subject matter experts and everything. So you have to be on your yeah. toes. And uh as a consequence, but I got to know many people. So um when Christchurch actually occurred, I was actually on all three. So I was on third cab off the rank. And and one of the things we had to do in urban search and rescue is that first and foremost, we've got to protect the people of New South Wales. It's their capability, yeah. and we're there for that. If we're going to do anything interstate or internationally. We have to be at least two deep to do that, and we know through experience you've got to be about four deep to get two task forces up and running because people have got family commitments and the like and that. So um, anyway, bit of pill to swallow. Brucey got on the on the plane and off he went straight away over to Christchurch. Yeah. Um, and I was on Oz three, and Oz three was a because uh, we had Oz one and Oz two at that stage task forces, which were um, Queensland and New South Wales, and then. Oz3 was made up of, they went, well, let's let's blood some of the other states, let's bring them in and let's make them a part of this. So I was a uh, oh, team lead okay. within Oz3, which they called the fruit salad team. So we had good yeah. apples, bananas, and pineapples, and it had its own complexities of working out who, who in the zoo, how you made your teams up, right. what their skill sets were. Different states did things differently, used different equipment, used different rescue tools. Um, one state didn't have portage capability, another did. So you had to mix your teams up and then We had to get out into the field. Now, we were there after the first two had deployed. Um, We rocked in and we were just at the end of the rescue and going into the recovery phase. So the first couple of days we were out there, we were still um, going into Latimer Square, you know, into the red zone as they call it, Latimer Square, the CBD. And, you know, it was at a point where we were um, delaminating um, getting into the buildings and looking for people. And we were literally, you know, one of the well in the telltales that there was somebody dead under the rubble with blowflies. So you'd walk down a lightway yeah, and if yeah. there was a proliferation of blowflies around, you knew somewhere here we were going to get a hit and then we'd have to start to delaminate, remove the rubble and look for it. Um, and then we were actually, just to add to the complexity, um, China had turned up to Christchurch as part of their process that really? so they were just a new team coming on board. And they, uh, they were put into my team and we were to mentor them and to give them, you know, some experience and some skills around it. So not a full, they didn't have a full team there, but they had enough that I could put some of them embedded into our team. Um, and so the hmm. rescue was really interesting and it was what, you know, Bruce has explained before. You went through all that normal process. We were out there and you'll find your body parts and, and you know, looking looking for bodies. So it was a bit, you know, a bit dark and yet he'd come back in at the end of the day and it was pretty full on. Um, I guess probably, you know, you make light of funny things along the way, one of the funny things every afternoon. So we were in Latimer Square, which had been set up as a tent city for all the emergency services. Water was being brought there. We were living in our tents and, and in ration packs and, you know, water restrictions and the like. Um, but every afternoon you'd, you'd get back in before dark because we were, we were transitioning into that um, recovery phase so we wouldn't work in the dark unless needed to, or there was a, a yeah, concern yeah. for welfare of somebody. But the... Uh, the aftershocks were thick and fast, and you would, you know, you'd hear them coming. You could hear the rumble in the distance. They talk of that freight train. Well, it's a freight train. You, you hear this rumble, really? and then all of a sudden, the ground starts to move, and it's the most, it's the most strange feeling. You you almost want to sit down on the ground. Well, what was happening, <laughs> as depending on how big the uh, the after tremors were, was that they were flipping the port-a-loos over. So if you were sitting in a portaloo <laughs> at the end of the day. And you felt you heard the freight train running, you had to get out of the toilet really quickly before it flipped on its side. So it was like a scene from MASH where five o'clock Charlie had come through every afternoon dropping the bombs down. You knew you had to get out. So we'd all sit down on our chairs and you'd see the blokes jumping out of the portals to make sure they weren't in them uh, sans pants, you know. So it was quite funny. So, you know, they, uh, that's a um, cracker. Yeah, and look, I guess the big piece then was uh, we 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 knew that it was there, but the concept had never really been practiced. This beyond the rubble pile, this concept of beyond the rubble pile. We've got these specialist firefighters, medics, doctors, carpenters, engineers—you name it—they got so many skills. And a big piece to, to getting the community back on its feet as quick as possible, and to get commerce operating again, was that. The team remained and we went into different type of operation. I had a team going out there with the carpenters and we were propping up awnings and getting roller shutters open so that the baker could start to bake bread again and we could get the grocery store set up. And they just needed manpower to get the the shelving back up and stuff like that. And occasionally you'd come across a deceased and, you know, like so it's a little bit recovery, a little bit um, of this uh, uh, rescue piece to it. one of the jobs I was given because I was a licensed builder, I would be sent out into the field with an engineer and some police officers. Many of the community in the peripherals to the main area were moving back into their homes, and their homes had been badly damaged. There was no electricity. Right. There was no sewage. A lot of siltification, everything, had liquefaction had come up and everything, houses were off their stumps and unsafe, but people had moved back into their homes because it was their home. And one of the jobs I had was we had a traffic light. So you had a green sticker, you had an amber sticker, and you had a red sticker. And we'd go from house okay. to house, and me and the engineer would have to assess was this livable or was it unsafe? Was a tremor going to bring this down on the family that had moved back in? Yeah, right. And if they got a red sticker on the door, that meant that the police had the power to move them out and uh, make sure they weren't allowed back in. Jeez. So you can imagine yeah. that this did cause a little bit of friction. Um, out in the scene, yeah. if you pulled the red sticker out. It would, you know, things would escalate rather quickly. If it was an amber, they would bring forty-four gallon drums with lids on them, and you would allow them to get their belongings out um, as much as they put the important things in storage for them and and you know, away. Okay. But if they got a green, they could stay. So you get pockets, you get half a suburb that was livable, and half a suburb for whatever reason, just where the fault line ran through, and the houses were just wrecked. But there were people in them, so we had to do that. Then you have to start setting up water points just for fresh potable water, so that they can cook mm-hmm. and eat. And you know, as I said, Portaloo cities—they were—they were buying Portuluse from all over the world and bringing them in on ships and planes and that, so that we could wow. stop all the all the, the public um, disease issues that ends up coming through. So really, really, for me to see it in practice, and then as a team leader to manage the personalities and that. And we were actually sitting. One of the things we sort of said we had some. Um, welfare officers with this firefighter peer support that we put on the plane it was a little bit oh are they getting a spot we need more rescuers but they were gold because at the end of the day and during the course of the day they're keeping an eye over the crew the crews were as effective yeah. as the community um we were actually they purchased the tv we put the tv up on a table in one of the tents so there was like a rec room so at the end of the day they could kick back yeah. maybe catch a bit of sport whatever and the, the government set up a a link so you could ring home uh, for free on on a big on a big caravan that had had phones. You know, mobile phones weren't as prolific, and um, and you know a lot of the cells were down anyway. So you had to sort of ring on a on this caravan to get home and yeah. the like. So we set a TV up and the TV on the first after fell over. And luckily it didn't break. So the boys <laughs> rigged up a rope harness that had hung in the tent. But while we were there, same thing, we go, this is great, the guys will be able to kick back. So what came up on the news while we were sitting there? Japan had happened. So whilst we were sitting in the middle of Latimer Square doing our recovery operations, we were watching the tsunami roll through Japan.
0: And we realised,
1: and at that stage, the Japanese team, all of a sudden you you could literally hear them starting to pack their tents and they were like, we're out of here, we've got to go. Yeah. Um, so then there was the, did you talk of that 4D thing, we had to suddenly, as an organisation, go, well, wow, we're being requested by the Japanese. You were invited in to assist them. It wasn't just a matter of rock up. You were invited in by the government who was going to go. So the Americans and New Zealanders, the Australians, you know, uh, there were teams that were turned away. But, um, yeah, so then we had to sort of start to go, all right, well, we got some equipment here. we got equipment back in Sydney. And there was a mad yeah. rush back in Sydney to get it. And that's where the likes of some of the guys actually were in Japan and were in in um, Christchurch because we just had this double up. and wow. We had to get them from one to the other disaster. Yeah, so yeah. one humanitarian one humanitarian disaster after the other. So for me, two things came out of Christchurch for for in the USA world was that we proved beyond the rubble pile that there was so much more that these specialists could do, and we saw that. Within that community, which would be typical of any of these disasters, is the the emergency services are normally smacked big time as well. Their infrastructure falls yeah. over. Their people have got personal issues. They go MIA when they're needed, and yep. so we, after many delays in Christchurch waiting to get equipment, so the, you know they were out in the field. They were triaging. They're coming in, but there was a delay in getting the terms back out to locations where work needed to be done. So they were really struggling with the administrative process. So as a concept of that, we we ended up with UCCs, which is the Urban Search and Rescue Coordination Cell. So it basically comes in with specialists from the USAF fraternity and go, we'll help you with this. So a big piece around it is not only just asking for help from the world, but you need to be able to adequately accept the assistance. So there's a process. And that's yeah. what the Urban Search and Rescue International Search and Rescue Advisory Group has put all these processes in place. And that's where we go with the training now. So that there is a process and teams know if you're first in, you might have been given this role at the airport to be the point of contact for all the arriving urban search and rescue teams, make contact with the locals, um, you know, and get all that set up so that we get them out into the field, get them set up and get them working as quick as possible. We've now come yeah. up with a very formal triaging system. Large area recon, right down to you know house by house stuff. But there's a process to it now. So all these things are learnings yeah. from these disasters, right back from Bandarache through to now. But Christchurch was in, for one of a better, what a first world country, and we saw infrastructure yeah. fall over that was not expected to fall over, and that. So we yeah. had a great many learnings from that moving forward as a as a as a rescue fraternity. Yeah.
0: Yeah, well, yeah, and I was going to say, like in New Zealand, they're pretty used to earthquakes and things over there. You would think if anyone was going to get that right, they'd get it right over there and look what happened, yeah. Yeah, so. And it's, um, and it's, it's no
1: through their own processes and the like. It is just when the, when the planet shakes, the planet shakes. You, I was just looking. You, yeah. I was just gobsmacked, you know, walking through the streets, you're trying to take this all in, and there's like light rail and tram tracks that have just, the track is just torn in half because that's. That's the that's the sort of the, the fault line as it ran through and tore and the roads tore in half yeah. and the train line is tore in half and buildings are down and and across just a beautiful city with parapets and it was the most yeah. English looking village outside of England yeah. you know like so and so unfortunately there were many deaths from parapets falling over on people and the like you know so
0: yeah right. Um,
1: yeah, so sort of Christchurch was a great learning thing. I ended up as an ops officer up mm. in Cyclone Debbie, um, Northern Rivers yep. twice, uh, Dongo floods, and and then you know floods, and and then a lot of stuff too. Even the the, the USAR skills, probably one of a, a really dark thing was um, I got called up to a, a country town where the local brigade knew a family, and there'd been a domestic situation, and a, um, a a woman and her child were burnt to death, and and but they were on a second story, and the crew didn't want to go, and so. I got called in as an urban search and rescue and we shored the actual structure up so that we could get in and recover the okay. bodies. And that, you know, so it was, it was really, you know, dark stuff to deal with. Um, and yeah. I, I totally forgot while we were being called in, somebody else was coming in because the guys in the town knew them personally. And that, this comes down to that whole yeah. piece then, I guess, maybe about resilience and, you know, yeah, when you're exposed to this stuff for 40 years like I have been, you know, like, how do you continue on with it? I think that's a it's a mindset for me. It's just, you know, I'm probably a little bit, hard to it um, you know fallout wise i don't like watching medical shows anymore <laughs> you know watching all those fly <laughs> on the wall medical shows not so i think i've changed oh, the yeah. channel you know but other stuff you know it's I, I guess it's the mindset is you know i'm here today to make a difference and everything i do i'm going to do so that i've done my best and that's all i can do you know and i, I try not to i try not to hold on to it so that that's my mindset around it you know
0: like one of the things that's quite interesting and and as you sort of said like you and bruce seem to have paralleled each other a little bit actually in all honesty looking at your bio <laughs> bio i would be surprised if there wasn't a little bit of professional competitiveness between you two but the just the, the way that you've you've chased that ex, that next level step you've i suppose pioneered expansions and improvements in areas that that needed it uh, to, and and as you you already said you know fought for years and years and years to build a capability within the brigade that took a long time to to get embedded. But in doing all of that, outside of that, you've been doing your surf life-saving, you've been volunteering, doing that, you're on the rescue helicopter. How on earth did you fit that in?
1: Oh, well, I, I'm <laughs> I'm easily bored um, and I like to be busy, you know. <laughs> so, um, you know, currently people go, oh, you, what are you going to do? But, you know, all this time was like, I'm just always going from one thing to the next. It's like that old adage of you know if you if you need a job done, give it to a busy person. And I'm that busy person.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, I'm still heavily involved in Scouts. I'm the local Scout leader at First Clovelly. Um, I see wow. great worth in in the development of you know young men and women at that age of you know from twelve to eighteen. So I think over the last twenty years, I've I've mentored twenty five Queen Scouts now. You know, so these are great young men and women coming through. Again, gain the, the highest award in scouting is 18-year-olds. Yeah, right. Um, so I see great worth in that. And I see there's, there's great analogies between uh, the scout movement and firefighting. And We used to say to the uh, the guys as we were teaching them to live in the field on urban search and rescue courses, we just want to get you up to Boy Scout standards so you can cook and stay yeah. dry and, and uh, survive in the field, you <laughs> know. So they, they didn't always take nicely to that. Um, but you know, same with uh, the, the uh, surf movement. It is the newest emergency service. It's just been accepted into the yeah. in, in New South Wales. It's now the the newest uh, emergency service. We were sort of a sport. We were sort of a not for profit. I didn't really know where to put it, but it's a it's a nice clean fit as far as I'm concerned. It is the yeah. peak aquatic body for open water rescue. On that, you know, and um, we, we yeah. we're finding our feet as we we plot along. We've now got a seat on the state rescue board, and we're progressing there. So my experience from the emergency services now comes back. So whereas I started as a lifesaver that got me into the fire brigade and into helicopter, I now like yeah. to say as a board member at state, I'm, I'm putting back in the educational sphere. Yeah. So do you think,
0: um, like as you said, like th- that USAR role and being an operational firefighter for as long as you were, you know, there's there's tough days tied up in that. And some of that stuff's pretty rough. Do you do you see what you were doing, uh, I suppose, on your days off or or between shifts? as part of decompression time or, cause I, I can only imagine some of your days as a surf lifesaver and particularly uh, as a heli- helicopter rescue crewman. Some of those days would have been pretty tough too. So that's a pretty, uh, oh, I suppose that dual service or tri service virtually thing that you're doing there. That's a pretty full schedule of what's effectively rescue work at the yeah, end. of the day. It is. It's sort that's of really...
1: like, you know, people say, so what sport do you play? I say rescue. It, it, it really yeah. is. You know, like, um, so if I had a sports component, younger on, you know, paddled Malibu, rode surf boats, wasn't particularly good at any of them, but they were great fun <laughs> and, and, you know, great camaraderie things, you know, particularly the team sports there. So surf sports were yeah. a great thing and a great interest. I've always been around the water. Um, But, you know, having joined the fire brigade and then the helicopter, you know, 81 and 84, they've been a constant in my life. So, yeah. I, so I just get great worth out of it. And, you know, I sort of said, I've raised my voice is that, You're privileged, you live in a lovely area in a lovely house, you've been well-educated, but you've got to put back. I think that service to the community is integral to what you do. It gives you value and worth of your own self-worth, you know. So, yeah, my life's built around that. Um, The analogy between fire and helicopter, I probably see fire brigade is very much team-related. Your crew become your second family you talk, you decompress with them, you know, there would be stuff I would discuss with my mates at work that I wouldn't bring home to my wife. Helicopter, particularly as a rescue crewman, where you're down the wire, and in particularly what we do now from where the helicopters evolved, you know, with toll and the ambulance takeover and all the stuff that's in there over the last few decades... We're, uh, we're an aquatic rescue specialty now. We, we get there quick. We, you know, get them out of the water. We get them back on the beach and, and get them to the next level of care, whether that be paramedics or doctors or whatever the case might be. Yep. But you're working autonomously, so you're in a little free person team. You've got a pilot, an air crewman and a rescue crewman. Mm-hmm. But when you go out the door on the hook and you are winched down there, you're, you better be very autonomous in your capability and being able to do everything yourself. So we're very set in our procedures. Yep. But... You, I, I guess just the experiences of all of the, the road crash rescue and things that I've attended in my career hold me in good stead. I'm very sure of my own abilities, and as I said, I train, train, train and maintain, and that's integral to me. I, I think that I would suffer greatly if I if I went to a scenario, particularly like one of those surf rescues at the bottom of a sea cliff. We do lots of stuff, you know, like it's not advertised. There's always the Oh, there was a boat out there and we rescued a kid off the boat with his dad and stuff. They're lovely stories, but there's many stories, that you know, the, the suicides along the sea cliffs around, yeah. you know, the the gap and stuff like that. And sometimes they're not always successful in their attempt to end their life and, and you're down there and you're doing, you know, resuscitation sure. on horrendously injured people and that. So you've got to be steeled to that and understand, and that, that's why in my mind it's I'm here to help. I'm going to do my best and I've got brought my A game today. So when I'm at the base, yep. I don't waste time. When I'm at, you know, when I was fire brigade, you're always drilled, you know, it was drilled, 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 and practice, practice, yep. practice, and I think that's sort of it. But, yeah, so it, I have been exposed, I guess, over those years, mate. So I'm very clear in, I, from my perspective, it's it's all about the fact that I'm making a difference. Whatever the outcome is, I'm yep. making a difference. I'm making it as the best possible scenario as we can. Yeah. So, But, yeah, most definitely a yeah. very... Two different things emergency based but one's more autonomous as opposed to more team based yeah
0: yeah I get, and that's a very different dynamic for you personally to be you know not only a member of a team but a team leader in the in the fire brigade setting and probably to a lesser extent as a surf lifesaver but definitely on the helicopter when you're out there on your own you know, yeah yeah that's a that's a very that's different it. and uh, i guess as
1: i've come through my career in the fire brigade side of things having your own crew being probably, you know, so what what is the best rank? Well, you know, superintendent gets to influence more because you're an executive officer of the organisation, but a station officer with his own crew, his or her own crew, um, well-drilled, well-trained and capable, make a difference every day at the side of the road or at the house or, you know, whatever. So for me, that operational aspect was just paramount. And probably if you ask me what's the best rank, so station officer having your own crew, yeah, and right. calling the shots and still being operational. But having said that, as I've come through the rank as inspector and um superintendent, I, I tend after my time, um I came back to the college, back to education. And that's why I've ended up yep. as the director of education at Surf New South Wales, because of you know, I'm right across all the educational aspect of you know being an RTO yeah. and all that goes with that. But you influence greatly in those roles. So every recruit firefighter right through to superintendent has a level of training now, you know, like, and particularly this last sort of five or six years of my career delivering the level two and level three incident command stuff. Um, it, we're future proof in those ranks, inspectors and superintendents. And from an organizational perspective, statewide, we're teaching them the same concepts now. So how that emergency operations centre should operate and th- those basic concepts of the AIMS principles that we're now putting into play. Yeah. And, and with all these um, recent, you know, bushfires and, and floods and the like, they're all getting well drilled at it. We all, it's interagency they, are, yeah. they all talk nice, play nice in the sandpit, which wasn't always the way. Yeah. Sometimes it was the broker, we're in charge, you go away, we're not going to take your help. Yeah, yeah, But it's been, you know, this, this yeah. latest flooding, it's just showing you how important it is for all of these agencies, including Surf Life Saving, have all been out in the field, affecting rescues yeah. from water sources. Even, so, in, in it. Yeah.
0: even inland yeah. for you guys, yeah. So that's was, it. So
1: from that perspective, this latter part of my career has been, you know, as I said, as a senior officer, you get to influence a little bit more at a higher level. Um, yeah. But you know, don't underestimate the role of a station commander with the well drill crew, They they make the world go round, yeah.
0: So one of the things that we talked a bit about off-air too was your f- – absolute uh focus on training and being prepared how do you think you've I don't know how how has that influenced you as a as an operator do you think over your over the course of your careers if we call it that
1: I I guess so particularly when I went to Burwood and I was with these just these dedicated firefighters that just loved the craft of rescue and were trying to expand the capability from a station level. And that's where those rescue contests... I think they were just trying to outdo black, Well, that was in black Blacktown, that's right. Bruce will tell you that. <laughs> um, but, you know, those rescue contests, as I said, somebody says, oh, they're a pan Well, you know what? They put process and practice into place. You would do drills, you would practice over and over and over processes and techniques to be effective with the tools. And when you look back at all of the concepts over the last 20 years at Road Crash Rescue... And the processes and the tools and the techniques that have changed, step blocks, uh, glass management kits, um, you know, like stabilisation arms, the Halton foot, different, you know, all these different things that have come out, have come out of rescue contests and then been put back into the field. You know, being able to take the side of a car out in, you know, 20 minutes as opposed to an hour because you all understand the concept of what you're trying and now that yeah. uh, Arrow or Anrara, as it was, those early days were bringing the guys together and we'd, we'd work domestic rescue, you know, cutting things off limbs and, and um, you know, stuff like yeah. that, it, all these little specialty areas. How do you drill a hole in a glass bottle? How do you get a jade bracelet yeah. off a wrist? All those things come about because of that training. So as a leader within rescue, when you were, like, had your own rescue crew on that, two things, routine and training. If you set those expectations, they very rarely let you down. But the routine of you would turn up, be on time, be dressed, be shaven, be professional looking, have your own personal equipment ready to go, then do the the actual maintenance of the equipment, then we'll go and do a drill, then we'll do the community engagement. Now it's free time. So if you set the crew to know what they had to do and you were participating in that with them, you were part of it. So... The yeah, routine yeah. and, you know, learn by doing, as the Boy Scouts say, you know, that's how the whole process works. The older boys show the younger boys and girls how to yeah. do it. And that's really the same in the fire brigade. It was very much built around that that, that. that There was a seniority system, which is somewhat broken down. And when I first started, there was a fourth class, probationary fireman, fourth class fireman, third, second, first, first A grade right. leading, you know, like so there was a huge rank structure that you went through and you worked through your craft before you got to be a senior firefighter. Um, yeah, yeah. Right. So we've cut back on that now. It's you know there's not as many ranks within yeah. it, um, and we've now we, we put them through formal, nationally recognised qualifications and the like. So I seem to think that the theory and that component, but that the old guys, the old smoke chewers and that, when they were kneeling on your back, <laughs> making sure you didn't leave, and you know you had the hose and your ears were burning and that, they were they were pretty good days too to learn your craft very very quickly. So, yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. Yeah, some of those guys had a lot of experience too. So, uh, and like yourself now, you know, having just very recently retired, but you probably look back fondly at well, look maybe not fondly is the right word, but you you look back with, uh, I suppose, admiration at some of those old smoke chewers as you call them back in the day. But I mean. You know, there's probably lots of young men and women in the brigade now that would be looking at you exactly the same. And, it's, and I guess it's just-
1: that, it, it's, there was a realisation when someone said, when did you know you needed to retire? And it was you know, only a couple of months ago I was out at, the, out at the college and I'd been out there. Two things happened in the one week. I uh, I was invited back to be a pioneer of rescue uh, of USAR <laughs> and I was there to give yeah, a talk yeah, about, yeah. you know, the history and stuff on it. I went, oh, gee, I'm, I'm now that old guy, you know. And I was standing in the fire, and in the fire of the new academy, there's this huge mural of the Buckingham's fire, which was like 1968 or something like that. One of the recruit firefighters yeah, right. walked past. He said, oh, excuse me, sir. He said, were you at that? I said, how old do you think I am? <laughs> so, you know, all of a sudden, I am the old guy, you know. So the silver hair yeah. must give it away. But... Uh, yeah. But it was sort Stripped of like you. you know, and, and that's really it. At what stage do you step away? You know, there's no upper limit anymore. You yeah. used to have to go at 60 when you were at the college. You could get in between yeah. 18 and 35. There you were know, height restrictions, weight restrictions, all that stuff. Like yeah. when you joined the police, yeah. and none of that really matters now. If you're capable and you can get on with it, you should be there. So, at yeah. what stage do you step away? And that's still it. So that that's nice. That's a bit of that's a bit of fun for me. But, you know, it was a time, and I guess, you know, your own mortality, you start to think about it. But, you know, like I've I've had a great career and I still love it, and that's probably the right time to leave. I've come out the other end intact in one piece. I'm sure there's a few scars there, both physically and psychologically. Um, But, you know, I'm I'm happy uh, looking forward to to life and and doing what I want there. One of the things that was palpable, mate, even right up to my very last day, I was dealing with um, a a firefighter that was having some uh, PTSD issues on the phone all day. And the very, very, very last call I got just before I signed off at my 4.30 on the Friday afternoon was a naked man stuck in a top-load washing machine. There were so many questions, but (laughs) I let it go. I said I don't need to know. Um, But that was my last day, so I walked up to the very last minute of my very last day. And um, But, you know, the, yeah. the weight of command was real. It was palpable. And the very next morning yeah. I sort of woke up and there was a lightness. There was a, you know, of course, when you've got your own command, like I had the Illawarra as the zone commander and you've got, three hundred fifty, four hundred know, 350, fires, you know, a dozen fire stations. And the command of three cities, you know, the Shell Harbour, you yeah. know, uh, Wollongong and uh, that whole Illawarra region and, uh there was a lightness there was really it was because it's your patch it's your problem seven days a week yeah you get your phone, inspectors ready to go oh, boss i've got this problem i've got that problem you know like and um there was just this lightness Maddie. and I, I guess that's sort of what for me i went you know what that was there and i didn't recognize it was there and all of a sudden now i get up and i do the things i want to do on my days off oh, <laughs> as opposed to yeah. having to get up and just having that weight there always the response and think about the last few years in particular We've gone from, we had floods, we went into bushfires and we went back into floods. So it's it's been yeah. a constant, you know, a lot of emergency management and, and you're away from home, you know, you put socks and undies in your car and off you go and you're sent to a an operations centre somewhere in regional New South Wales and you're there and away from your family and that and that's... That's sort of a that's a big thing and uh, you know when you, you we
0: talk yeah. about that debrief and we'll talk more about that at the end but uh, yeah definitely yeah. Yeah. but actually you're right in in uh, that's something I um, used to talk to the duty commanders and zone commanders that I knew in the brigade at times when it, when it was appropriate just to acknowledge how how much pressure they were under because you you know as a you know somebody that's a step away from where they're at it's it's really quite obvious how much how much is on their on their workload and it's not and it's not all operational and that, that's like it so and that's
1: it you know from an operational perspective right up to inspect you're worried about keeping the trucks on the road and keeping yeah. the operational but when you it's your command you've got the operational the financial the hr issues around yeah. uh, underperforming or overperforming or naughty firefighters that need a kick in the pants yeah. you know like so and it's constant <laughs> and, and you know so You've got the financial drivers. You've got all the HR issues. You've got the public expectations, and you've got the day-to-days making sure that everything is, everyone is well, everybody is operationally capable with you know the skill sets that they need. So it is a big piece, and it is constant. and And I probably didn't recognise that until I'd finished and I went, "Wow, you know, like that." That there was, as I said, I I explained it. There was this mental lightness. The next morning, I woke up and I had no obligation to be on call or have that phone next to me
0: did your family notice a shift in you after you left do you think yeah I think or so Sharon says I, I don't here?
1: frown as much and I'm not as cranky so I guess you know <laughs> when, when, when you do look at that you, you know you look back and the peer support stuff has increased exponentially as as has the recognition of it in the early days in the 80s in that if we had a big incident and we had deaths at a fire and stuff like that we all, you'd get dragged on to the early open straight after night shift. That was oh, yeah. alcohol and yeah. sitting around in the pub all day to lunchtime and getting blind was yeah. the way that the old guys would do with that stuff, you know? Yeah. That's not the way we do it now, you know, Like and, and for the better. Um, there's processes in place to address all that stuff now, you know? Um, after Christchurch, we all had mandatory, you will turn up and you'll pop into a government, you have to go see the psychologist or psychiatrist about yeah. how you were feeling and what was going on and that, so... They suddenly started to care, you know what I mean? It wasn't that they never yeah. didn't care, they just didn't have processes in place, you know. So now we've gone yeah. from one station officer that was the peer support guy that you rang up and went, on oh, on struggling, to a whole process now of debriefing. You know, as I said, these debriefs, so even yeah. after the event, the hot debrief on the fire ground or the incident ground straight after it, and then a follow-up, yeah. you know, after you've had time to review it, gather intel and sit down and talk through the problems and things that could have been better. Um, and then the follow-up calls with with your commanders to make sure that the teams are all going along all right, and you know everyone's cruising along. So there is a much better process now than what it was in the early 80s. Yeah, most definitely.
0: Now, listen, we haven't had anyone from the helicopter sphere uh, on the podcast as yet, so there's probably a lot of people that aren't real familiar with what a day in the life of a helicopter rescue crew person is like. So could you just run us through what You know, I think you said you were on shift on Saturday. So what, and like just, just recently, obviously we've had a horrific season this year in the, in the surf with the amount of rescues that have been required, drownings that have happened. You know, unfortunately one of the, you know, one of the sergeants from my old unit, um, sadly just, just a Uh, couple of days ago. Very um, sad, yeah. Um, look, yeah, I, I guess it's, it's, uh, it's tragic. Uh,
1: so historically, uh, this is 2023, is our 50th year. So it is the uh, it was the first, the Sydney Westpac rescue helicopter was the first civil rescue helicopter in the country. Uh, started in 73. I joined in 84. So we've been going 11 years when I joined. Uh, notice went up on the Surf Club notice board. Helicopter crewman required. Um, turn up yeah. on Saturday, so we got thrown off the rocks. At Col-
0: Tell me, was that the old? Was that the old bubble bell? Yeah, days uh, it
1: was very close. We just got rid of it and gone. We had a, a jet ranger and a squirrel had just arrived. Right when I sort of rocked along, so uh, I've
0: seen the historic pictures of the old MASH helicopters, <laughs>
1: and I uh, yeah. so I, I turned up. 120 lifesavers turned up, and they threw us off the rocks at you would swim across the long reef. It was in August, so it was the middle of winter in your Speedos. I got out and I was shivering, you know, like it wasn't much fat on me back in the day. And uh, then they went, all right, you were the first, you know, 12 guys or something, get in the helicopter and we went up to 50 foot. They said, jump out. And some fools jumped out. Six of the 12 jumped out and six went, get stuff, not doing that. And then of the six, um, three of us got trained up and two of us are still there from 1984. Um, and in those, no, in those early days, um, we were literally, we had a 30-foot piece of rope um, with a little splicing at the end with three hooks. So it had three tails and a soccer ball was the float. It got connected to the cargo hook and we would fly out oh, to yeah. sea or out to the back of the break or wherever it might be. I think the furthest out I, I did a rescue was off a wreck off Diamond Bay and I was hanging under the helicopter for five nautical miles back and they lifted me up the sea cliffs at Diamond Bay <laughs> and put me on now. These things aren't rated for life. They're just a cargo hook. If you pull her on, you get dropped off. So, you know, it was these were um, these very early days, these guys, these pioneers, Ian Badham and the team that initially got it up and running, you know, and um, uh, Brian Chaseling was the representative from the then Wales Bank that saw value in it and went all put some money towards that. Um,
0: They were the first sponsors. Yeah, and it's now the
1: longest running corporate sponsorship in the world. We're entering our 50th year. Um, I've been there since 84 and uh, so a long time doing it. So predominantly once we got in and and through to today, we uh, started out at, uh, we were at uh, Rotary Lodge at Royal North Shore Hospital and we used to get rostered and we used to sleep on the floor out there. And um, we were there at the introduction of the inner you know, hospital transfer system with uh, doctors and, and helicopters going to get sick people. So we would, you know, I was a foundation crew member out at CareFlight and uh, we used to sleep yeah, at, yeah, sleep right. on the floor in the office above the morgue um, and we'd get up and go <laughs> out and we had the helicopter just out in the paddock on the oval in a little shipping container with our gear in it and we'd get our flight suits on and we'd fly up to Blackheath or one of the little district hospitals in the Blue Mountains. And then fly back down to Westmead to bring a little old lady down that had septicemia or something, you know. So they were the early days; they were the groundbreaking days of what it is now—this multi-million-dollar contract where these huge helicopters from Toll are flying all over the state. So we were there at the start of that, yeah. So um, you know, we we were there, and then you know we progressed. Probably brought the Scat officers on from Paul Featherstone, and a whole bunch of the Scatties came on board, and their expertise in rope rescue and the like really changed the way we did things we were still just cowboys jumping out the door and doing our best as surf life savers and it professionalized us a lot and, and uh, again you know the likes of myself and clay allison and that we had cordage skills that were complementary because of our firefighting with yeah. the ambos yeah, yeah. and we started to look at different ways of doing things that were much safer and then we, introdu- we introduced the paramedics as well as the doctors and, and the crewmen on and then we went to bigger machines and so a yeah. typical day for me now is we are rostered on, we turn up out there, we um, check the helicopter from front to back, and pilot do all the mechanical stuff and the crew check medical packs and all of the winches and all the gear that we might use and your PPE. Um, and then we sit and wait. So we've got a simulator out there. We practise our uh, our skill sets around water rescue. We've got different techniques that we use. So snatch and grab, where yep. if they're in a wave zone or in close to the rocks, we can get in real quick and get out before we get smashed by the waves. We've got a floating line system where we've got a 60-foot piece of rope that hangs between the rescue swimmer and the hook so that we can manoeuvre around okay. in the rock, in the rocks and in the white zone. It's uh, very unforgiving with a three-and-a-half-tonne helicopter and a steel cable. If you're down yeah. there in the wave zone and the cable gets around your leg or around your neck or something, you're going to do yourself a serious yeah. harm. So. We've tried to mitigate a lot of the risk and a lot of the processes um, that uh, are now taught uh, were invented by us and they've gone to the other services. So a lot of the stuff there within the industry has come out of the, the Sydney Westpac base. Um, and now mm-hmm. it's really, you know, that CRM and, and the skills that all of all the guys out It's a little bit of dad's army. I'm second youngest out there now, I think, mate, but time for some young blood. Um, but we just can't them they move on and and uh, but you know the right. experience that we've got just makes us a very safe operation and we fulfill a niche yeah. within the rescue fraternity we are yeah skilled watermen um, operating in green water and white water around the beaches and the sea cliffs and the like. so we're not there to be an ambulance we're not there to be paramedics. we're there yeah. to get an unfortunate soul a rock fisherman uh, a, you know a swimmer that's been dragged out to sea. Out of the wave zone, or out of that, you know, the most dangerous five kilometres of coast in Australia is between Botany Bay and um, South Head. There's more rock fishes yeah, is die right? there, and more people. are more from head of population, but it's also got all yeah. the rock platforms, and a lot of rock fishes die. Um, yeah, the
0: recipe's just, right, isn't it? Recipe's
1: yeah. right for it, and yeah. as a consequence, we're very, very proficient at, at getting. The rock fishers and people out of surf zones and back to the beach. So, you know, it's about pick them up, get them back here, and hand them over to the ambos or or the docks on the helicopters to do the next level of care. So, we're first aiders, we're lifesavers, and we have good water skills. And and that's sort of what we do now. Yeah. And of course, having said that, um, we end up at floods. We've been, the machines have been getting sent out to the floods to assist getting people off the roofs of their houses and the like. So, we've got a capability and we'll go wherever. We're asked by any of the emergency services and we tie in with the police. So the police coordination centre looks after our what they need us to do. And so um, the tasking come all them. comes from yeah, right. that. Yeah. yeah.
0: Did you go out to any of the floods yourself with the machine out there? Or? Um,
1: not this time. A couple of the other guys did. It depends if you're on and some that's why you always keep your socks and undies in your locker and because you just go, yeah. Well, you're <laughs> not coming back for three days and off you go yeah. again, you know. So um, but, yeah, no, just yesterday I was out there, we had a beacon go off somewhere along the coast. Um, they weren't yep. sure, so you're out there looking for potentially a, a boat that's gone under and the like, and uh, they found it, you know, in a tip at Parramatta. So, you know, that's oh, yeah. all that sort yeah, of yeah. stuff. Um, so every day is a little bit different, um, you know.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, Windsurfers, when there's a big squall comes up and the wind changes direction, all of a sudden they're blown out of Botany Bay out the heads and you're out at sea looking for yeah. a windsurfer lane on their board or a you know, it really is a lot of stuff and a lot of the, the sea cliff access stuff, you know, getting getting them away yeah. from the dangerous aquatic environment back to a back to yeah, a, safe a That's a
0: challenging uh, challenging environment, that water versus cliffs versus Yeah, yeah that's, and that's, the that's, power uh, of the ocean, a, you that's know, a you niche get in area. there when
1: you see those guys playing around, when you're in that white water where you've got low buoyancy and they're getting yeah. smashed, and even you being on the end of that hook, every time you get pulled yeah. through that wave and the hook's got you held there, you feel the pressure come on, you just hope something's not gonna catch your when you've got an yeah. overturned boat fishing line to tangle you up, the diesel, petrol yep. in the water to burn your eyes or get on your skin, you know, all these hidden dangers when you're doing this job. So, yeah. But I'm still upright. That's the main thing, mate. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Is everyone uh, that's involved in the helicopter base out there uh, obviously the pilots are going to be a bit different but are all the crew members volunteers with the no so what happened
1: a- was i did my first 16 years out there as a true volunteer you know in the infancy yep. and then the insurance became that expensive to have volunteers on they said whether you like it or not we're going to pay you as a stipend because then you're right. professional and the insurance comes down so for it the last down decade down, right. we've been professionals um yeah, albeit a step to for your service out there, and um, it yeah, keeps right, the insurance right. down. But uh, so there's different operating models. There's, I think, we've still got like I don't know, 12 bases around Australia, Gold Coast, you know, Western okay. Australia, South Australia, and the like. And every operating model is a little bit different. South Australia still has volunteers yeah. on it. Um, you know, they, they're covered by different state legislation, so they like SES yeah, officers. We're not. And now, but we're an emergency service. Maybe we will be. So there's all that sort of political yeah. stuff in the background that can change the role. Um, albeit there's not one person in Australia that's ever been charged by being rescued by a Westpac rescue helicopter. And that yeah, that's pretty <laughs> unique in the world, I think. So yeah.
0: So yeah, it's actually some the reason I asked that is um one of the other podcasts that I listen to is the Australasian era medical podcast that um Cameron Edgar and um, and James Cohen yep. run and yeah, one of the questions that he was saying he gets hit up with a lot is how on earth, like, if somebody wants to get into being a helicopter crew person, how do they do that? And uh, yeah, that's what I was wondering. Like, you, you're talking about the, you guys all getting grayer by the day out there. <laughs> I was thinking it's probably. A- as I
1: said, we were the we we're a group of guys that came through and we were given a chance as 20 year olds, and we're still there. Yeah, and I think the model's yeah. unique and and brilliant because it gives a volunteer lifesavers a chance to be doing something that is unique and and worthwhile. Um, We draw a lot of our air crew have military experience, either from Navy or um, um,
0: Army.
1: They don't necessarily float real well. They're normally solid guys, (laughs) ex-Army or Navy. Um, But if you're down the wire, if you're down the wire, your your water skills are really what's required, and that's why every six months we get put through a a regime of physical tests to make sure we maintain it, you know. So, you know, I'm, I'm going all right for an old boat. (laughs)
0: <laughs> you certainly are.
1: Three times world champion as a medic, and I'm not a medic. I'm just a firefighter. And I guess I just put yeah, it in, put it into a concept, in, into a process. Um, and that was always the thing for the trainees when you're a rescue instructor is, How do you start at an accident? You know, outer circle, inner circle. Assess the patient by calling to them. Access the patient if necessary. Stabilize, extricate, transport, and all this. They get it, and then you go. All right. Well, when you get to the patient and the ambos aren't there yet, what's the process? So I sort of formulated this process that ran through from the you know the initial. uh, are they breathing up, you know, DRSABC in your yep. sample history thing and then, you know, down to the, treating the injuries. And by the time the team would have cut the side out of the car, my patient was already splintered, bandaged, you know, ready to go out the door. <laughs> so I changed the process and then teams started to emulate what I was doing after my first year of success. And I had three world championships as a medic. Um, and I'm sort of yeah, proud of that, right you know, right. like I just said, not a medic. And when I was over in, I think we were in... Where were we in uh Scotland? I beat doctors that were in teams from Hems and things like that because I just followed a process and it ticked all of the marking guide. But it was a process that any first aider could follow to save a life at the side of at an accident, you know. So that was that was pretty pretty good stuff. Yeah. So uh but other than that, mate, it's you know, that's
0: I think you're, you, you're applying that sort of philosophy to everything that you've done is obviously, you know, you've been, a, you've been awarded an Order of Australia medal for your Service to Surf Lifesaving and the community. I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's pretty rare in these circles to, uh, to be recognised at that level. So what you've done for everybody, you know, everybody out there, especially in the water, obviously, but, you know, your career extends to far beyond the water, far beyond the beach, in your time is certainly well recognized. And I, I mean, going back to, you know, having our sort of interactions up in the Blue Mountains over the many years ago, I, I think there was, a, you know, and, and I said the same sort of thing to Bruce Cameron, you, your approach to how you've done stuff throughout your career, your approach to rescue is was certainly well recognized in in my circles anyway. In there, you know, that... And as you said, a lot of, a lot of back in those days, there was certainly an element of adversity between the, the agencies, but it was certainly well respected just because of how, how you've gone about doing, your, doing what you do, I think. And, and the same, the same approach, uh, with, I suppose, making sure you can lean back on your confidence through proper training, uh, is, is one of those assets that, you know, is, is. I don't know how to explain it but it it's that found that foundation of giving yourself the best chance you've got uh, and, and being comfortable with the fact that when you get involved it doesn't matter what comes your way but getting thrown that that left field job or that thing that you may never have expected you've mm-hmm. you've prepared yourself as as well as you can and and uh, And that's and really interesting. It shot.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting that you say that because I think next steps for the emergency services in New South Wales were I think when we first came up with the concept of urban search and rescue and when all of the candidates, police, yeah, you know, we had police dog squad, we had, the, 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 you know, engineers yeah. and, and, the, and the scatties and the like, all epaulets came off. There was no rank. It was just yeah. a team leader or a course manager and the rank yeah, was yeah, not right. how we were going to go about this, you know, like if you had three or four station officers there and you were in the team, you were digging holes like everyone else, your role was that, that sort of thing. And it worked a treat. And what it did create was a lot of um, camaraderie between agencies that wasn't always there. So it really was an icebreaker. And I think now on the back of all these emergency services, I think that what the next step needs to be is that all of our senior officers at inspector and superintendent level come together in one centre of excellence for incident management training and leadership training—you know—they're two very, very different things. Um, having yep. the administrative function and the process as a, as a, an emergency manager, but also being a leader—two different things. They're, they're integral to each other, and I think yeah. that's the natural progression for me because what that would create within New South Wales is this cohesive meshing of all of the agencies together so there is none of that tribalism and that they are all trained together at the same academy of excellence to yeah. train in, in that senior leadership piece and, you know for me that would be what a great outcome for New South Wales and and yeah, then that, 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 would that model would run national you know and I think that, yeah. that there's no reason that can't occur into the future man
0: yeah 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 it's certainly a good it's <laughs> there's no there's no um, downside of doing it to take that philosophy away and, and put it across more than just you sir, that's for sure. Listen, we've been having we've been chatting for a good while now, um, and I think we've hit this point in time where I'd like to ask you those three questions that we mentioned at the start. So, as we've already talked about the importance of debriefs and what they can do, but looking back across your careers, and I'll put a put an S on the end of that for sure, given <laughs> given your uh, dedication and involvement to your career lines, what do you think's worked well for you? From my
1: perspective, enthusiasm, love of the job, um, being capable, gaining skills has has always worked well for me Um, and that routine and as a leader within the organisation when you had your own crew and that that routine was really important. Um, What did probably work so well is probably at times the life balance piece, you know, like... um, yeah. All emergency fraternities understand it. When when the jobs, you know, the flag goes up and whatever the job might be, bushfires, floods, rescue, if that is your job, you have an obligation to go. And it's sometimes, you know, on the home front, my wife has just been steadfast. She was always there to manage the house and the kids and do all those issues while I was away in other parts of the world or other parts of the state or country, training Um, Or or at incidents, you know, like she was just always there, and she. I'm sure that she had concerns at times when I was off, you know, at rescues and the like. She probably still does. So I think probably what I didn't do well was probably there was was a time when I left the rescue section, went back to the station, where she sort of said, you know, do you understand how many family events you've missed this year? You know, from christenings to weddings to kids' parties and the like. And I sort of welled on that, and it was time to, you know, even go back to the to the firehouse and have a little bit more so that that's sort of something that sort of sticks in my crawl a little bit of probably could have done a little bit better you know like sometimes yeah the career did get in front of family and family's what it's all about mate so you know what would you i do think different? i do
0: i do hear that pretty consistently you know like i think it comes with high achievement is usually over commitment
1: <laughs> yeah over commitment and, and as you said that that commitment to task you're not going to walk away um the people yeah. in New South Wales put a lot of money into training me and giving me the skills that I have. Yeah. There's an obligation to pay back to the community, you know. Like I have, yeah, yeah, actually yeah. had one one of my firefighters, she said, Tony, you, you're quite the conundrum to me. She said, you're a capitalist pig with a socialist heart. And I said,
0: well, I can live with that. <laughs> you know, so as I said,
1: I've always been a farmer but I had other businesses along the way. And uh, But, you know, you yeah. never, never let that get in the way of doing your job properly and caring for others. And I think that's a big piece of it and I hope. Hope yeah, as a wow. father that that's rubbed off on my boys is that you know you have an obligation yeah. to put back into the community in which you live you know in some way it doesn't have yeah. to be a lot both yeah. boys patrol at the beach and and they're on you know doing right. their own their own things and that but they continue to patrol Um, and I think that's a really important piece for me is that you know and I guess that's where the Order of Australia I was quite chuffed that it was recognised of course yeah. you just get on with it you don't go looking for it but I was quite um Quite happy to receive it. I must say, a absolutely, lovely, yeah, lovely yeah, recognition. Yeah,
0: that's that's a proud moment for sure. That's uh, yeah, that's that is something else. So, look, I I I always get challenged by this last question of what would you do differently. I don't know whether it should be asked. You know, would you would you tell yourself anything? You know, back when you back when you were eighteen years old, starting out as an adult into these career lines would you tell yourself to do anything differently or would you, would you just inherently or would you give someone else advice, I guess, if they were going to follow in your footsteps about how, how they should go about it?
1: Yeah, I, yeah, I would. I, you know, I would say and it was one of the questions they asked at our retirement. Would you do it again? Yeah, in a heartbeat, mate. In a heartbeat. Mm. Um, what would I do differently? Probably for a lot of time, doing all the other businesses did stop me. So there was a while there. I was very comfortable and loving being a fiery, but on my days off, I was doing other stuff. I should have progressed. I, I started as a fire brigade baby, an 18-year-old. I, I had probably another couple of ranks in me had I started a little bit earlier. And, I, you know, and <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so I would say make education a real important piece of what you do. Um, having those academic qualifications to back up as you progress through the ranks. There's the trade-related stuff, the vocational training stuff, but there is a yeah. need for higher education within all of the emergency services. I think the more that we learn yeah. about leadership and business, and, you know, that's something that we none of us do well. You know, we're all emergency yeah. managers, but, you know, maybe a little bit more training in the actual practical side of business and, and accounting and stuff like that would be very hard. Yeah. So I would say get in there, get the academic credentials while you're sitting there young and you have less commitments and when you start having children yeah. and the like get in there get your degree find something that's going to support you later on and it, it, you, it will come back to use it most definitely education's a real big piece for that yeah
0: i think there's two things in that too like a lot of a lot of the role as you get more senior is less and less technical yeah. <laughs> in, the, in the sense of what the actual job is, isn't it? Yeah. So, um, And it also, also from an an options point of view, I, n- I know the police are pretty heavy now on giving people uh, alternatives to continuing, but you've got to have a, you've got to have something else you can transition into. And if you've got some sort of, what do you call it, less niche qualification. So, uh, and, and the fire is that I've, that I know, and, and certainly police that I know that are have sort of said, I'm not qualified to do anything else out in civil land. Like what, what can I possibly do? Everything I've got is tailored. Like, you know, I'm a bomb technician or I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a super qualified firefighter, but I want to go and do something else now. You know, these, these quals that I've got now, um, you know, don't really help me. And, you know, since I got out and worked in another government department, I actually, I did, I didn't actually realize how well educated some of the the other workforces are out there. I think you get very absorbed in your agency's specific needs and what you're required to do within your job. And then, yeah, you take a step out. And I, I couldn't believe some of the qualifications and, and levels of study that people have done to do, you know, what were to me fairly routine, mediocre-type roles. Mm, like, and and
1: I, I agree with you there, Matt. When I started in 80, everything was internal. You did it. It was, this is yeah. here's the, the firemanship, the manual of firemanship, learn it and you progress through the ranks, there was no need to go external. The guys have progressed and, you know, and obviously the further you progress, the better educated you are, the more you can influence at the higher ranks for the better of everyone that is under you, you know, so... I think that you know, that education piece is we're blessed in Australia. We have a great education system. Make use of it while you're sitting there. Make use of your time. Yeah. I wish that I did more academically along the way than what I've done. You know. Right. Mm. Yeah. Okay.
0: And I think I, I one thing I wish, one thing I'd tell myself <laughs> uh, if I had my time again on that education point is. There's never, there's never going to be an easier time to get on with it and do it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <'Cause> it, it, <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's yeah. plenty of time. The there's internet's goes changed on. everything,
1: communications, you yeah. know, phones. And, and you
0: always think, oh, things will get easier later on. I think you just get busier and busier, that's so it. it gets harder and harder to actually <laughs> do it, rather than the other way around. But anyway, uh, look, thanks very much for the uh, for the chat. There is so much we didn't cover, um, uh, which is unfortunate because it, your story is. You know, it's so diverse, it's actually hard to capture it all <laughs> in one chat. But, uh, look, I like from, ah uh, wow, what a, what a, uh, what a career and life you've led the, Thank the you, stuff buddy. that you've fit in there, you know, and your, your obvious commitment to service, helping others is just your whole life's been dedicated to that. That's quite a, quite an amazing feat. And, um. I, I, I don't I don't like the beach actually too much. I, I, uh, <laughs> I'm quite scared of the ocean, to be honest with you. It's a, it's a frightening place because I don't know much about yeah, it. But it's nice knowing there's people like you flying around. And, uh, yeah, thanks very much. Thanks. I've got to ask you one more question, though is there a, is there a song you listen to in the helicopter on your way out to the filthy category five seas or whatever they call them where there's 20-foot waves and overturned boats and all that sort of stuff to get yourself in the mood no no because no. what we're looking for is we're looking for songs that are going to help these people on this walk uh you know when they're, they're, they're trying to do about 40 k's a day on the walking days and i'm sort of thinking having done lots of long stomps up in the blue mountains as you're getting towards the end, it gets harder and harder. And if they're at the 39th K, what song are they going well, to Well, I'm always
1: that stressed on the way that it's once I'm finished, Boys of Summer, favourite song. Takes me to my happy yeah, place. Right. It's after the fact, but not on the way. Too too many radios to talk on on the way to the rescue. So we'll save it for later. Boys of Summer is my favourite.
0: Yeah, yeah, cool. All right, we'll put it on the list. So we've got a little Spotify uh, got a Spotify list that we're, we're populating with all these songs. So I'll make sure that one's still <laughs> one. on there for sure. Hey, you, oh, look! Thanks so much for your time. I Really appreciate it. Yeah, it's it's so it's such a great opportunity for the listeners of this podcast just to have uh, to hear stories from what I, I'm sure you'd classify yourself as an average everyday person that's just got after it every day that you've you've been uh, getting up and 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 look at what you've done. And what my message to everyone is: there's no reason why you can't do the same. But you know, it's it's really interesting for us is how you've managed yourself in such a, uh, like a literally a hectic, you know, life that you've led on, you know, both your professional and, you know, volunteer, uh, other private, private fleets. So, um, yeah, look, it's an amazing story. And thanks so much.
1: Thanks, Matt. Been a pleasure.
0: You've been listening to the Heart to Heart Foundation podcast. People on their own journey for the awareness of mental health in our first responders thanks for listening and please remember to support our foundation by going to the webpage at www.hearttoheartwalk.org that's www.heart the number2heartwalk.org
1: or just google it